Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Our guest today is here to talk about a book that was published two years ago. It is as relevant today as it was then, if not more so. The book is They Don't Represent Us, Reclaiming Our Democracy. The author and our guest today is Lawrence Lessig, who is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School host of the podcast Another Way, and co-founder of Creative Commons. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome Lawrence Lessig to Politics, A Love Story. Hi, Larry. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And and, uh, I'm going to say for the on-air audience that I you packed so much information that I was wondering whether I should just read your book on air and we could discuss it as it was read. <laughs> that is, of course, impractical because we only have an hour. But I do have 17 or so pages of notes and quotes. We wow. won't even have time for that, but I think I'm ready for whatever comes up. So do, would you like me to start the conversation in a way that um, I think we could go forward from? Please. Okay. In the early 1970s and early 1980s in the Soviet Union, one day communism was truth. The next day, it was a lie. We live in a similar time, not the same scale, not with the same consequence, but with a faint echo of the same dynamic. Obviously for us, the vulnerable idea is not communism. For us, the vulnerable, vulnerable idea is democracy itself. So can you explain what you mean by that? Well, it is astonishing to think about what I meant before January 6th. (laughs) But what I meant before January 6th was there was a growing perception, I think, especially among the elite, that the democratic process was producing increasing craziness, that people seemed less aware or less capable of addressing modern problems in a serious or sensible way. And that our faith, our collective faith in ourselves was collapsing. Pew has a famous graph which begins, you know, in the early 1990s, I believe it is. And the question is, do you have faith in the public's judgments about politics? And two thirds back then did and one third didn't. Those numbers are now reversed. Two thirds of us don't trust us to talk or decide about politics. And it's that sense of, wow, if we don't trust ourselves as, democ- as people in a democracy, then the very idea of democracy is threatened. And then, of course, add on to that everything that happened around this last election culminating in January 6th. And what's come out since then? Now, we have 146 members of Congress, elected members of Congress, 139 House members and eight U.S. senators who refuse to accept the fact that Joe Biden won the election. Uh, We've never had this happen in the history of this country, have we? No. And I think the more important statistic in all of this reporting is that more than half of self-identified Republicans believe there is, quote unquote, clear evidence that Joe Biden was not elected. Now, whether you believe any of these conspiracies or not, what you can't believe is that there's clear evidence. And what that evinces, in my view, is exactly the pathology and the architecture of media that we've allowed to evolve that allows us to live, um, as Barack Obama puts it, in our own worlds. You know, so some of us live in a world 
where we're fed with media that tells us that the election was stolen, that hundreds of thousands of ballots mysteriously appeared in the middle of the night, that there's a conspiracy by the Democrats to steal every election. And those people who are told that again and again, as Fox News repeated that uh, many, many times leading up to January 6th, come to believe it. And then those living in a different bubble, um, of course, you know, I live in the different bubble, and so I believe the facts in my bubble are true, but we have a completely different view of reality. And the idea that we are trying to run a democracy when we live in these radically separate worlds, don't even understand each other, is terrifying. It's something that's happened just once in American history, that we've had these publics separated like this and aware of our separation, and that period was the period that led to the Civil War. Well, I think uh, I read into this something that happened in the 30s in Germany. Uh, it was Goebbels who said, uh, tell a lie over and over and over again, and pretty soon it becomes the truth. And the bigger the lie, the easier it is to swallow. Would you yeah. say that there's a parallel to today? Absolutely. And... But I want to complicate it a little bit because, of course, one dimension is whether we're telling the truth or whether we're believing a lie. But another dimension is what are we paying attention to? Now, I certainly think, as somebody on the left, that um, the view of the world that the Trumpers have is false. Um, that, you know, Trump had, you know, there's no doubt Donald Trump lost this election. There was no widespread fraud. There was no substantial fraud at all. It was an extraordinary election in the middle of a pandemic. And so from that perspective, I think, you know, we're, we're in this sense better than they are. But the other dimension about what do we focus on or pay attention to, we are as vulnerable as they are to being distracted by the issues that enrage us or drive us to engage because the architecture of media we live within profits, the more it can turn us into crazy people who are focused on just the politics of hate for the other side. I mean, this, you know, I, the second half of my book is all about the infrastructure of media and how this undermines our capacity to do democracy. But the other, you know, fact that's happened since I published my book is the extraordinary explosion of information around the inner workings of Facebook. I mean, you know, the Wall Street Journal has just completed um, I think they've now done six articles. There are going to be a bunch more, I understand, called the Facebook Files. And what these articles reveal is that that incredibly important social media company that has billions of people focused on it every single day, 90% of those people are outside of the United States, that company is a tobacco company. That company spends its time looking at the effects of its infrastructure and time after time, when faced with a choice between making its infrastructure safer for its users and making its infrastructure more profitable for Facebook, chooses profit every single time. And the consequence of that machine of manipulation is that it drives us into these rabbit holes of polarized opposition to each other. And we can't even see the world the other side sees because we've been so effectively fed the information we want to see and excluded from that anything that might challenge that information. This is something radically new. 
and the idea that we are so so wired into this infrastructure of distortion is terrifying and not even clear what we can do about it. But I think it's urgently clear something has to happen um, to address it. It's been said that the government is often far behind the real world. Uh, so that's basically what you just said, that the structures of regulation and control uh, don't know what to do or how to deal with this. So is there anything that you think can be done, uh, at least in the short term, uh, to prevent this from getting worse? Well, I've long believed that we have to find a way to end the corrupting the corruption inside of our government first. Mm -hmm. And by corruption, I don't mean the kind of corruption that we saw in the Trump administration where, you know, people like Ivanka and her husband would appear in the White House and still be conducting, you know, millions and millions of dollars of business with people who had an interest in the White House. You know, that that kind of crude corruption is something we hadn't seen for over a hundred years at the federal level, at least at the White House. Um, I mean instead a more systemic or systematic corruption of our political and I would say also our academic um, information infrastructure. And by that I mean, you know, we have a system where members of Congress spend anywhere between 30 and 70 percent of their time raising money. And when they spend all that time raising money from a tiny, tiny fraction of the one percent, they are technically dependent on that tiny fraction of the one percent. And so when they confront problems that are genuine problems for America, they can't confront those problems without thinking about the people they are dependent upon or the interests that they are dependent upon. So, you know, Joe Biden has uh, pushed forward a, a whole range of incredibly ambitious and, and I think fantastic ideas for how to address the problems that our nation faces. But if you look at each of them systematically, they have been undone by the lobbyists inside of Washington who are able to get every one of these great ideas corrupted because Congress knows that it depends upon the lobbyists and the money the lobbyists can shake down on their campaigns to get anything done. So systematically, we can't focus on the right answers to these incredibly important problems so long as this corruption exists. Now, this is you know incredibly important in domestic policy. One issue that I've become obsessed with in the last two years is its effect on foreign policy. You know, we just ended a 20-year war where we spent six and a half trillion dollars at least waging two wars, the consequence of which is that America is worse off, less safe than we were 20 years ago. Uh, no one won anything in that war except for a handful of government uh, military contractors. You know, Eisenhower w warned us about the military industrial, his original draft of his speech spoke about the military industrial congressional complex mm. that would conspire together to benefit themselves and against the public interest. We've seen the worst example of that over the last 20 years. But no congressperson can stand up to that because the extraordinary amount of money that those arms makers and, and defense contractors and security firms and now the intelligence firms rain down upon the system, um, make it so they have no freedom to resist that. And my view is if we don't find a way to address that immediately, then none of the things that anybody cares about um, will be possible. I'd like to read something from your book. Um, 
It's not too long. Uh, In the summer of 2016, University of Maryland conducted a massive study of voter anger with their government. The study found the highest level of dissatisfaction in the history of polling. It also found an almost unanimous view about the source of that dissatisfaction, both absolutely and across the parties. 92% thought government benefited big interests rather than all people. 89% thought corporations and their lobbyists have too much influence. 85% thought Congress does not serve the common good. 89% believed elected officials think more about their interests of their campaign donors than the common good of the people. Democracy, we believe, that's actually your point, you believe, does not work for the demos. Not that it couldn't, in principle, but that, in fact, it falls well short in living up to its ideals. So this goes to the heart of what you just said about the military-industrial-congressional complex. People are aware of this, and that's why they don't trust the government, I think, in, in part. So there are so many areas of corruption that you talk about, the direct and then the indirect and the, the dependency corruption, but it, in today's newspaper, I believe, or yesterday's Wall Street Journal, as a matter of fact, 158 judges, it found, this is <laughs> the Wall Street Journal, that they, in cases they were hearing, they had interests in the outcome because of the stocks they owned. And we know in Congress, I don't think there has ever been a person that had been a member of Congress that was pleading for help from other members. You see that in other professions, acting and uh, entertainment of sorts where people are spending their money. But they make so much money from stock trades while they're in office. They don't have to ask for help. How do we stop that corruption? Well, you know, it's I, I, I sometimes feel like it's a you know a person with terminal cancer who's on the way to the hospital and gets hit by a bus, and you know they arrive in the triage room, and it's not clear what we need to address first. Um, um, and it's that's you know I, something I think about a lot. But the point I still insist on is that the first thing we have to do, if we're going to make the people or allow the people to trust the government again is to make the government trustworthy. And the way to make the government trustworthy is to remove these corrupting influences inside of government. Now, you know, we should not imagine that this level of distrust that we have for our government is in any sense accidental. You know, there has been an extraordinary campaign. Kurt Anderson's book, um, Evil Geniuses, I think is really brilliant about this. There's been this concerted campaign um, by the far right since the 1980s to deeply uh, seed the idea of distrust of government in American society. Because what they realized was that if Americans didn't trust their government, they would support the idea of deregulating and and detaxing all wealth in America. Like if we don't imagine the government can do anything, then the idea of rallying the government to do something will be crazy. So we've seen an extraordinary collapse in the past 30 years in the gov- in the public's attitude about what the government can do. And that's been fueled by this concerted skepticism, this politically announced skepticism about the government. And you remember Reagan talking about how um, the government, you know, the, the nine uh, most dangerous words in America, <laughs> I'm from the government, I'm here to help. Um, 
you know, th- this idea was a joke originally, but it's become almost a religion today. And so in a world where they've succeeded in making it so that we don't believe government can do anything and where the government has made it so we don't trust the government is actually working for our interests, it makes it extremely easy for the only legitimate policy choice to be deregulate and uh, detax. And the consequence of that is that we have a middle class that is completely stagnating in its uh, economic opportunities since the mid-1970s, uh, or at least the 1980s. We see an extraordinary uh, uh, inability to address fundamental problems like climate change. It is astonishing. We still have not passed a single piece of national legislation to comprehensively address the problem of climate change. Not one. And, you know, healthcare in America is the most expensive in the developed world and and not even anywhere close to the best. Education, I mean, every single one of our problems, we have no capacity to address when the public believes government can't be trusted and anyway, government can't work. And that prob- both of those problems, we've got to find a way to address. And, and again, I think the first step to making it so we trust government is to make government trustworthy. Well, um, you lay out a lot of good uh, possible solutions in your book. Um, but I worry that uh, they may be just aspirational because the practical aspect, as we see today, I mean today, uh, what's going on in Congress trying to get uh, those two uh, trillion-dollar bills passed is that politics is entering into this. What it might be best for everyone isn't what's going to get passed. And then you have stubborn people like Mitch McConnell who only wants to get it over on Democrats. He doesn't care about the people he represents. Uh, And you go back to Grover Norquist when you're talking about the, (laughs) the 80s. He wanted to get government down to the size where he could drown it in a bathtub. Yeah. And that's part of the problem. We have all these lobbyists and other people working against the people. So how do you get something passed when, as you pointed out before, you have all these elected people who are dependent upon the lobbyist money to continue in office, uh, and they are doing more what the, uh, the moneyed interests want from them than what the people who actually go and vote at the polls. So how do we get around that? Well, I think the Democrats made a fundamental mistake at the beginning of this administration. You know, I mean, I've been fighting in this fight, um, uh, you know, for about 15 years now. And I was astonished that Nancy Pelosi led the charge to make fundamental reform the number one thing that the Democrats promised they would do when they came to power. I mean, she promised that in 2017, if the Democrats regained power in 2018. And when they did, she passed the For the People Act within the first six months of 2019. And then she teed it up for 2020. And she said, if we get a a Democratic Congress and control of the Senate and a Democratic president, we will pass this fundamental reform. And God bless her. She has done everything she can to get this law passed. And so did, um, so did Democratic leaders in the Senate try to get it passed. Um, but the president, unfortunately, doesn't take this issue seriously as a problem that he needs to wake America up to and rally America to fix. Because the president, bizarrely, 
continues to have this romantic attachment mm. to the rules of the old Senate, in particular the filibuster. You know, he has these dreamy images of, you know, bygone days when white men, despite their party, could get along and pass laws, just, uh, even though there was a filibuster. But we have to recognize, you know, an issue which is very suppressed in my book, uh, I, I regret, but uh, is now one that I think we need to really focus, to realize just how corrupting the filibuster is mm. inside of our democracy. You know, if uh, the filibuster is now going to be deployed, as Mitch McConnell has signaled he will deploy it, for every single important issue. So every single issue is going to face the filibuster unless it's a budget reconciliation uh, bill. Um, then what that means is 41 senators have a veto over any legislation that Congress passes. 41 senators. They don't have to even stand on the floor of the Senate. They just have to send a text to their leader that says, I want to, I want to filibuster this bill. And when they say that, bingo, the rules are changed. And that bill then requires 41 votes to pass. Now, just think about what 41 means. 41 votes means that the senators representing 21 states have the ability to block any law passing in Congress. Okay, 21 states. Take the 21 smallest states that supported Donald Trump by at least 10 points. I mean, some of them by 30 points, but the smallest 21 states by at least 10 points. So these are the far right of America. Those 21 states have the power to block any legislation in the United States Congress except for budget reconciliation. Okay, now those 21 states that have been granted by the filibuster this veto in our Constitution represent 21% of America. So one-fifth of America has been given the veto power over legislation in Congress. Now, if you don't address that, Nothing else matters, you know, but he can talk about his ability to work deals across the party. And, you know, we're all celebrating the uh, infrastructure bill. Where's the infrastructure bill now? Um, nothing will happen if we don't get a democracy first. If we don't fix democracy first, nothing will happen. And that means fixing the filibuster, ending the corrupting influence of money in politics, ending the gerrymandering, ending the suppression of the vote that is so open now across the country in the states. If we don't do that, we've lost a representative democracy. We are going to be a minoritarian government like Syria or Iran uh, or Iraq um, or Rwanda before um, Kagame came back. I mean, the point is we are not a representative democracy if the majority cannot rule. And under our system of government right now, the majority does not rule. Well, you had a lot of uh, points that you made about the Senate, uh, and at a 50-50 tied Senate, the Democrats represent 40 million more people than do the 50 uh, Republican senators. Yep. That is uh, something that is skewed, and that's going to be hard to fix. One of the, your solutions was to get rid of the Senate or to uh, change the filibuster. Uh, I'd like to read another uh, part from your book, which goes to what we were just discussing. Uh, it the core principle of equality has been corrupted within our republic, at least within the dom domain of the people. The institutions of our democracy do not represent us equally. The, that fact presses an obvious question into the fore. Why do we accept unrepresentativeness in a representative democracy? Why do we allow a corruption of the idea of a republic? And then you say the the corruption is mapped out in five dimensions. We do not have one, 
and equal freedom to vote. We do not have a vote that weighs the same in either two Congress or for the three president. The four Senate does not represent the states equally. The way we fund campaigns mean we as five voters are not represented equally anywhere. In every dimension, the core principle of a representative democracy has been compromised. Is it any surprise that having broken its parts, the machine of government no longer works? You put that very well. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to be so right about that, but I, you know, nothing at the time since this book was published draws any of that into doubt. It's even worse. You know, it's worse that um, in so many ways, you know, um, the openness with which state Republican parties are pursuing the, uh, the ability to suppress the votes of Democrats. Now, you know, people look at it and say this is racially motivated. And I'm sure in some places it is racially motivated. But what I'm absolutely sure of is that it's politically motivated. They're skewing the rules in the states to make it harder for the majority to win. Now, that might have been done before, uh, sotto voce, you know, under the, under the hood. But now it's done openly. Now it's like completely obvious and nobody doubts it because the Supreme Court has said, go ahead, have at it. We're not going to get in. We're not going to get involved. And then after this 2020 election, to have Republican legislatures considering bills that would give them the power to reverse the vote of the people in their state is astonishing. It's literally something that's never been considered in the history of America. But now it's not even not just being considered, it's being considered openly. And this is the point that that passage you were just quoting was trying to emphasize. Look, we were supposed to be a republic. You'll have conservatives always tell you we're not a democracy. That's true. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. But a republic means a representative democracy. And the thing about a representative democracy is it's supposed to be representative and ours was intentionally supposed to be majoritarian. So we're supposed to have an equal weight according to our uh, population inside of our government. And the winner is supposed to be the side with the more, most votes. But we have now allowed these systems to evolve that systematically deny the majority power. And, um, and I genuinely fear what happens if this doesn't get corrected. You know, if we, if, uh, if the For the People Act or the Right to Vote Act or um, Freedom to Vote Act, I guess is the new one, doesn't pass, if we don't reform the filibuster, uh, and we lead into a couple election cycles where the minority party succeeds in achieving control over not just the Supreme Court, but the Senate and the House and the president, what does America do? What are you supposed to do when the majority doesn't control anymore and you are in the majority? Because the reality is most Americans vote if they are vote is allowed to count in a way that supports not necessarily Democrats, but democratic policies. And we ought to have a system where, you know, more votes means you win. Well, that leads me to another interesting uh, possibility here. Let's say that optimistically uh, that Congress, and that's basically the Democrats, do reform some of the voting rules so that there is majoritarian rule. Then it goes to the Supreme Court, where it dies an ignominious death. Well, maybe. Depends how they do it. But the For the People Act, for example, 
which in my view was the most ambitious democracy reform package Congress has considered maybe in the history of the nation. I mean, you know, the 1965 Voting Rights Act was pretty important, but that was just one dimension of the problem. This is address, this would address suppression of the vote, gerrymandering, money in politics, and it included a whole bunch of important ethics reforms as well. Each of those provisions was, in my view, on very solid constitutional grounds. Take the gerrymandering one. You know, when, um, when uh, the Supreme Court decided in a case called Rucho that the Constitution does not ban partisan gerrymandering, what the Chief Justice wrote in that opinion is, if Congress wants to end partisan gerrymandering, the Constitution gives them the power to do that under what's called the Elections Clause. Well, that's exactly what the For the People Act is written in accordance to. The For the People Act invokes the Elections Clause to give it the power to end partisan gerrymandering. The ability to fund campaigns through matching funds or vouchers, which is part of the For the People Act, is an ability that Congress, that the Supreme Court has repeatedly upheld. You're allowed to have public funding of campaigns, period. And the power to say that you can't use state power to suppress an equal freedom to vote is again expressly reserved to Congress under the Elections Clause. So I think that even though the court is a very conservative court, very much more conservative than America, and I think illegitimately so, given the stolen appointments that Donald Trump was allowed to effect, um, even though, despite that, um, I think this court would uphold these fundamental reforms and, and at least give us a chance to fight um, to achieve some uh, representative equality inside of our system. Well, doesn't Congress also have the ability to determine what the Supreme Court has to not uh, take up and decide upon? In theory, yes. That's expressly in the Constitution, and it's been long understood that that means that the Congress could decide um, certain questions should not be heard by the court. The reality is that would go against such a longstanding tradition that it, I think it should be the last um, uh, recourse taken. You know, I think that as much as I agree with those who believe that this court um, has been packed illegitimately um, and that uh, uh, and that there's no justification for the supermajority that the conservatives now have on that court, given the fact of uh, the Democrats' um, victory in the context that should have allowed them to appoint those that, that that notwithstanding, I fear taking steps that would even further render the court into the political tool either of the president or of Congress. I'm not saying we shouldn't necessarily. I'm just saying let's try everything else first. Okay. Among those things that should be tried first would be adding justices to the Supreme Court be one of those things, or is that even after? Uh, telling justices what they can talk about or decide upon? I think that if Congress were to be very clear on the justification, and the justification here is the majority leader's inconsistent application of this so-called rule that said that um, you shouldn't be allowed to appoint in the context of an election, you remember Barack Obama in February of 2008, uh, 2016 was given a chance to appoint the replacement for Justice Scalia. And very quickly, he nominated a very moderate uh, judge. Many people thought, I was one of them, that this was a wasted opportunity. Mm. Merrick Garland's a great judge, but he's not as, uh, 
he's not as um, aggressive in fighting for ideals that the progressives should want as others would have been. But the point was, um, in February, um, he nominated uh, um, Merrick Garland, and uh, the Republicans immediately declared that because it was an election, hmm. they would not take up the nomination of Merrick Garland. So they denied Donald Trump. Uh, they denied Barack Obama, the Democrats, that seat. And then when Justice Ginsburg died just weeks before the 2020 election, um, immediately the Republicans raced through a nomination um, uh, of a justice, um, completely inconsistent with the rule that they had declared was the rule of the Senate. Well, okay, if you're going to be that hypocritical, if you're going to be that openly political, then you pay a price. And the price is we'll appoint double the number of justices you have stolen. So they however you want to count it, they stole one or two, depending on which way you want to look at it, then, you know, we'll appoint two or four uh, in their place to create the incentive going forward that never again should you play this game, that we should agree on consistent rules, which is the president gets to nominate and and get at least considered, he doesn't have a right to have them confirmed, but at least considered uh, any justice within uh, um, an expeditious period of time, maybe not as quickly as... um, the last justice was confirmed, but um, certainly not um, as slowly as uh, led to the termination of just uh, Judge Ginsburg's, uh, I mean, um, Judge Garland's uh, nomination. So I think that if it were tied to the bad behavior that the Dark Lord, Mitch McConnell, perpetrated, I would be okay with it. But if it were a general rule that's like, well, now we're in the majority and we don't have enough justices on our side, so we're going to appoint a bunch of new justices, I'd be against that because I don't think partisan interest should drive the court size. I think creating the right incentives for nonpartisan appointments should should drive the court size. Uh, well, before we go any further, I, I didn't realize how quickly the time is flying by. I guess we're doing well with this, but I'd like to reintroduce you. Uh, you're listening to Politics, A Love Story, and our guest today is Lawrence Lessig, author of They Don't Represent Us, Reclaiming Our Democracy. I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. Now, one of the things that uh, you just said is the justification need to be there if we're going to increase the Supreme Court. But as you also pointed out, we've already had the justification. And now with this uh, shadow docket that seems to be getting worse, and yesterday there was outrage, I mean outrage, from Alito about how the world is trying to intimidate the Supreme Court. I don't think so. You have to be smart to be intimidated. And I don't think these five of the six anyway are really uh, the stellar people that we would hope to have on the Supreme Court. And methinks thou doth protest too much besides. They're feeling the heat and maybe justifiably so. Well, I mean, I, I won't join you in, in questioning their integrity, I mean, their intelligence. Um, and I don't even know enough to say I question their integrity. I think that they're um, committed to their ideals about what uh, the Supreme Court, about what the Constitution requires, and they feel empowered because they now have majorities to bring it about. But I will agree with you that um, it's astonishing to me that Justice Alito wouldn't recognize how um, partisan the court is appearing to the world right now. Um, And, uh, you know, another book I published um, uh, in 2019, something I've been working on for more than 20 years, Hmm. um, called Fidelity and Constraint, um, is all about this dance between the court 
trying to interpret the Constitution according to the fair meaning of what the Constitution requires and the political constraint on the court's ability to do that, given the public's perception of the motivation or the justification for what the court is doing. And those two things, those type of fidelities, fidelity to meaning and fidelity to role, live together in the in the context of the court. And, and I think that um, this court has got to become much more sensitive to the way in which it's um, amending the Constitution through a presidential appointment uh, system um, is dangerous. I mean, you know, um, not many people will remember, but there was a really important moment in the history of the Supreme Court when it looked like there were enough conservatives to overturn Roe versus Wade in the mid-1990s. And um, this case, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, um, was the case where everybody thought it would happen. Um, you know, depending on how you counted, there was at least seven votes, seven members of the court who um, had said things that would lead one to believe that they could have been rallied to the side of overturning Roe. But three justices, uh, Justice Kennedy, Justice O'Connor, um, uh, and, um, uh, oh man, I can't believe, um, David Souter, um, wrote this extraordinary joint opinion, a very rare kind of opinion in the Supreme Court. And the joint opinion essentially said, look, whatever we would have done originally, if we now overturn Roe versus Wade, then everybody will look at this institution, the court, and think it's just the handmaiden of the precedent, that it doesn't interpret the Constitution or independently determine what the law requires, that it's just a, a tool to be used by the president when the president can't get an amendment through the ordinary process. So they, all three of them, pretty clearly signaled they were not fans of the underlying decision, but they were not going to be part of an effort to amend the Constitution through ju judicial appointments. And um, that was an astonishing moment because I think many of us stood back and said, wow, this is teaching a really important lesson about the constraint that the Supreme Court should be operating under. Um, but I think that, you know, that lesson has been uh, a lost uh, in the current court. Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Alito, Amy Ban uh, Barrett-Cohen, I don't know whether she, I don't know where she is yet on hmm. this, but, you know, some of the religious cases so far suggest that she too is more enamored of her extraordinary new power than of preserving the institution of the court. And, um, you know, Justice uh, Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, I think has been an enormously important institutional player on that court. He has been extremely uh, clever, I think, in crafting decisions, even decisions that he supports in a way that affirm, affirms the um, lim limited role that, um, that politics should be playing. Even though I disagree with many of them, I, I, I can, you can see the sensitivity to the institutional needs of the court. And I fear that that sensitivity is not really what's operating in the forefront of Judge Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Alito's um, mind right now. So he, Justice uh, Roberts, is basically an incrementalist. Yeah. And that, At least, yeah. sometimes. I mean, yes. It, it's hard to say in general. I mean, he, you know, when he wrote the extraordinary opinion that upheld Obamacare, one half of that opinion was an incredibly radical rewriting of the power of Congress under the Commerce Clause. It just didn't matter because the other half of the opinion affirmed Obamacare under what's called the taxing power. Okay, whatever, Obama wins. But 
that was a pretty substantial change in what we understand the commerce power to include that he could slip in hmm. because he knew that, um, you know, the liberals would be very happy that he had ultimately upheld uh, Obamacare. So I wouldn't say he's completely um, uh, neutral about I mean, I, I do think he has purpose, but um, but he more than most on the conservative side, at least, has been very sensitive to the to the role of the court. So let me throw out a hypothetical, and um, if you don't think that it's proper to talk about it, we won't. But what would happen if there was such an egregious decision by the Supreme Court that the Obama administration did, decided to ignore it? The Biden administration? Yes. Yeah. Did I say Biden? or the... I think you said Obama, but whatever. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, the point is, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, we'd have a constitutional crisis. Don't we have um, one now? We'd have a really aggressive constitutional crisis. There's a very famous exchange that um, uh, Ju Chief Justice Berger described um, when uh, uh, you know the Supreme Court told Richard Nixon that he had to turn over the tapes. And of course, Nixon knew turning over the tapes meant the end of his presidency. So there was a real question. What would happen if Nixon said no? And when Berger was asked that, um, without missing a beat, he said, well, I'd gather up the Supreme Court police and we'd march <laughs> on the White House. You know, now, obviously, he was joking, but he was bringing he was if he was illuminating a very important point. All we've got is the willingness of um, the um, branches to obey the law. And there were many times under the Trump administration, uh, during the Trump administration, where there was a kind of open challenge to that. G uh, judge Easterbrook. Uh, who was a very conservative judge appointed by uh, President Reagan in the Seventh Circuit, wrote a scathing opinion about the um, uh, INS because basically the INS had refused to obey an order of the court, uh, a lower court, but not the Supreme Court, but basically the lower court told him to do something and the I I I INS said, no, we're not going to do that. And, and he said, this is, you know, an astonishing challenge to the rule of law. You have no right not to obey the court. You might disagree with it. You might take the issue up to the Supreme Court. You might get the president to try to intervene, but you have no power not to obey the court. Now, we didn't see that resistance generalized in the uh, Trump administration. And um, I hope we never do. Because as terrifying as, you know, January 6th was and the open discussion of um, uh, election subversion and overthrowing democratically um, uh, achieved results, um, if the rule of law were openly uh, flouted um, by uh, the executive branch like that um, in the context of judicial proceedings, then then I would th then I think we are in, in, in much greater uh, risk than than we even are now. In um, one of the sections of your book, you point out about three researchers who studied the effect in the 34 states that have some form of voter ID. The net effect of these laws is, they found, plainly partisan. The findings presented here strongly suggest that these laws do, in fact, have real consequences for the makeup of the voting population. Strict voter ID laws appear to diminish the participation of Democrats and those on the left, while doing little to deter the vote of Republicans and those on the right. They produce a clear partisan distortion. Uh, in the last part of your book, you talk about a lot of things that are not uh, things that we want to have happen to us. There are distortions and 
anti-democracy situations that have set up, and you offer some solutions, and we'll get into them uh, in a few moments. But um, do you think that voter ID laws in the first place are okay, and why didn't we do that before if they are? Well, I don't oppose the idea of voter ID laws. Um, I oppose particular ways in which they might be implemented. You know, so for example, in states like Texas, you had voter ID laws that would not permit a student ID to be used as an ID, but would, would permit a gun club ID to serve as an ID. Now, you know, that difference is not about deterring voter fraud. That difference is about making it harder for one kind of voter, presumptively liberal, to vote, and easy for another type of voter, presumptively conservative, to vote. So the details here matter. And I think it's it's just not possible to look at the strategies that have been deployed across the states and see them as anything other than motivated by purely partisan interests. The reason they are deploying these rules, these voter ID rules, you know, changing the app, the ability to have voting uh, ballot boxes or, you know, boxes where you can deposit absentee votes, chilling the opportunity for absentee votes shortening the time when you can actually vote, all of these changes are obviously related to making it harder for one side to vote than the other. Now, of course, it doesn't, it's not a perfect correlation. You know, if you make it harder, uh, if you reduce the voting time, voting booth times from seven o'clock in the morning to five in the afternoon, there'll be a lot of Republicans who can't vote too. But what we know is they are looking at the disparate impact on Democrats versus Republicans. We know they are considering whether their rules make it harder for Democrats than for Republicans. And the idea that we allow self-consciously partisan motivations to govern the architecture of our voting system is just third world. It's banana republic. And, and so, so this principle, I think, ought to be overwhelming. Fine. Make it so we have a reliable system where there isn't voter fraud, although you know, the level of voting fraud has never been demonstrated to be anything at all meriting this type of attention, but whatever, make it so there isn't voting fraud, but don't build systems that you intend to make harder for one party to vote than for the other. That should be a violation of a fundamental principle of a democracy. And it's a, it's a little embarrassing that we don't have that principle operate within ours. Uh, you mentioned two people in your book that have different methods of uh, voting. One of them is Tom Perkins, co-founder of Kleiner Perkins, <laughs> one of Silicon Valley's top venture capital firms, said in 2014 that only people who paid taxes should be able to vote and have as many votes as dollars paid in taxes. Pay $4 million in taxes, have 4 million votes. It didn't go over well. What may be good for corporations is not necessarily good for American democracy. And then, of course, the other person you mentioned was Jason Furman, uh, who he believes in epistocracy. Only the most knowledgeable people should be able to vote. Uh, and when he was on the show, I asked him, well, how would that work? How would you know who the most knowledgeable people are? He says, well, I don't know. And <laughs> I said to him, well, why don't you test it at your college, at your university that you work? See if it'll work there. Uh, you're making this... A pronouncement that this is what we should be doing, but you have no idea how to implement it. So uh, th these are two different things, but whether you're the most knowledgeable or the least knowledgeable, you have a right to vote. 
And if you pay taxes or no taxes, you have a right to vote. Yeah. Well, we all pay taxes. I mean, we, should, we shouldn't perpetrate the idea that there's any American who's not in some sense paying taxes. It might not be income tax, but we're all paying taxes. And I think the fundamental principle is no taxation without representation. So, you know, epistocracy, it's a clever academic idea. I don't think it has any place in modern uh, American democracy. And, you know, um, Perkins' view that if you pay, the only, the only people who have votes are those who pay taxes and you get basically as many votes as you pay in taxes, actually not far from the reality. You know, I mean, Silicon Valley is filled with billionaires who channel millions and millions of dollars into the election system. They don't get millions and millions of votes. But as far as a candidate's concerned, it's more important that they give them, you know, $25,000 or a million dollars to some super PAC than it is that they get their vote. I mean, you know, I know that members running for people running for the Senate in California, which, of course, is an extremely expensive place um, to run, um, call up people not asking for their vote. <laughs> They're calling up people asking for their money. Mm. So we, we already have that corrupted system. And and I think what we need to recognize is that there is no justification for that corruption. And more than justification, we just won't get anything important done unless we end it. And it's not like we can afford not to get anything important done. You know, the rest of the world marches ahead. We can't even get climate change on the agenda. We can't have health care that everybody has access to. We can't begin to address the issues of AI technology and the displacement of jobs that's so obvious to anybody who looks at it because we're so trapped inside of a corrupted political system that allows Congress people to do essentially only what their funders allow. That's got to change or nothing else will change. Well, that's a problem. Um, after 2010, when Citizens United was decided, uh, the Supreme Court at the time said that money is speech. Well, um, so if I have $1.25, I can contribute. And somebody has, like uh, Sheldon Adelson, uh, used to spend as much as $200 million. So he obviously gets to speak more. Well, isn't that... Uh, incorrect as well? I mean, why should money be speech? Could you explain that so that we can understand it? Well, so this is this is uh, surprising to some people. Um, but I actually agree money is speech. So in this sense, um, you know, you might remember, um, I think it was, it was Rob Ford, who was the mayor of Toronto, and a famously... Uh. Um, uh, drug-addicted yes. mayor, terrible, terrible mayor. And I remember going to Toronto and asking people why they didn't throw him out. And, um, and the answer was, well, in Canada, where money is not speech, the government has limited the amount you can spend on campaigns so that nobody can afford a campaign to challenge Rob Ford. Rob Ford wins because he's the incumbent and nobody has the ability to rally the support to overcome the incumbent. And that may be, you know, begin to think. So imagine in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles City Council passes a rule that says nobody can spend more than $1,000 on a campaign to become city councilor in, in Los Angeles. I mean, that's a plain law to protect the incumbents. And if money weren't speech in the context of what the Supreme Court thinks of analyzing the First Amendment, if that were reviewed under rational basis, which is the standard that most laws are reviewed under, that would be perfectly okay. So my view is that's not okay. 
that, you know, the government shouldn't be allowed to muck about with the rules to protect the incumbents from being challengers. But even if money is speech, there's no constitutional right for rich people to make Congress dependent on them. So I think we should focus not so much on the speech side, but on the dependency side, on the corrupting dependence that the existing system creates. And there's nothing in the Supreme Court's money as speech jurisprudence or in Citizens United or anything that would stop Congress from passing laws like the For the People Act would have been that makes it so members of Congress are not dependent on the tiny, tiny fraction of the 1% who fund their campaigns now, but instead we're dependent on all of us. So, you know, one of the ideas that um, is getting a lot of support these days um, um, that I've been pushing for, you know, at least 15 years and uh, Seattle just enacted it um, um, about uh, four years ago or five years ago is the idea of democracy vouchers. So every voter gets a voucher and they use that voucher to help fund campaigns. And what we can see in Seattle is that when everybody has democracy vouchers, candidates are focused on raising that money from everyone. So they become focused on trying to please everyone, not just the tiny fraction of the 1% who write the $2,500 checks right now. So I think we can address the corrupting influence of money by focusing on the corrupting dependence money creates um, and still have a constitution that makes it impossible for governments to structure the way we run elections to protect themselves against challenges from the outside. But those people who have the most money, I think in what you just said, you did allude to this, that, or you did before, that the people who put the most money in are looking for favors of some sort, whether it be a tax break or some other one company uh, part of a bill, they get it. But with my dollar twenty-five, I don't get anything other than the ability to say hello to my member of Congress. Uh, there's something wrong well, with that. That's right. But I but I would I would frame it like this. Look, there are many members of Congress who don't actually want to bend over backwards and benefit the the uh, tiny fraction of the one percent who are funding them. They would rather do what they think is in the public's interest, whether it's on the right or the left. They just would rather not be these sycophants to um, extraordinary wealth. But right now they can't do anything other than that because if they don't suck up to the people who are funding their campaigns, they won't get reelected. But if you give them another way to get elected, that they weren't a way that didn't require them to be dependent on this tiny few to fund their campaigns, I think many of them would act more independently. Many of them would um, uh, make decisions based on what they think their voters actually want as opposed to what these funders want. Now, not all of them, um, but I think many more. And I actually think, you know, one example of where you can see this work is, is you know, institutions like um, federal courts. Um, um, you know, we can all talk about the political bias of judges on the courts, and I think that's real. But the reality is, you know, when a judge is listening to a party, um, uh, the judge is just deciding which side the judge thinks is right. And he's not, or she's not thinking, geez, if I decide this way, my pension's going to disappear. Or if I decide this way, my job is not going to be here next week. Or if I decide this way, I'm not going to have half of my paycheck uh, next month. It's just deciding what they think is right. So their decision is not being driven by the interests of the parties who they're listening to. And that should be the same with Congress. You should not be a congressperson and worry 
that if you pass climate change legislation, you're not going to be able to fund your campaign or your opponent is going to have millions of new dollars in their campaign because the carbon monopoly is going to step forward and support your opponent and not support you. You should be able to decide, should I protect the environment from climate change based on whether you think it's an issue that uh, deserves national attention? Obviously, I think it is. And so I think that we're not going to perfectly we're not going to perfect the system. We're never going to have a system where everybody makes the right decision every time. But we can change the corrupting influence within the system dramatically tomorrow. And if we did that, then we would have a system where we could hope to get the kinds of changes that, um, that we know we have to get right now. So we're near the end of our time, but I think it's important for me to read what you wrote, uh, that it's a lot very hopeful uh, and I'll start with, the only way to change the rules today is to convince everyone that the change is for everyone. The only way to change politics is to convince everyone that the change itself is principle, not politics. That the change is instead simple democracy, expressed in the simple words of ideals that still move practically every single one of us. We must build the structures of political change that can rise above the partisan. We need to fight these battles in a manner that strikes both sides as above the interests of either, as battles committed only to the interest of a republic. A republic, a representative democracy, a democracy in which we all are represented equally. That republic we do not have. The republic that we have never had, if you count citizens, uh, the people who obviously are. That republic, as citizens, we must now fight to achieve by rallying the best in all of us, as citizens first, to a democracy that could represent us all equally. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I like those words. I still believe in them. Um, and it's hard to believe in them these days. You know, um, I... The great uh, former dean, or maybe he's still dean. Jeez, I should know this. Erwin <laughs> Um Well, he's around because I see books yeah. uh, with his name. Yeah, he's he's um he's quite an extraordinary member of the legal legal academy. But he just declared today that nobody should talk to John Eastman, who was the law professor uh, who advised the president on the president's attempted coup in the 2020 election. Right. Because John Eastman was so completely wrong in what he was saying. And I got to say, I think my friend Erwin Chemerinsky is wrong in what he is saying. What we need, what we have as an obligation as citizens is to find a way to talk to the other side. Even if we disagree with him, which I obviously overwhelmingly disagree with John Eastman and his view about the president. And we have to find that common ground so that we can begin to build a common recognition about the devastating threat that our democracy now faces. And I'm not optimistic necessarily, but I am convinced it's the only fight worth having. Well, uh, we're going to have to uh, leave on that note. And I want to thank you, Lawrence Lessig, for coming on today and talking about your book, They Don't Represent Us, Reclaiming Our Democracy. I can't imagine how quickly this hour has gone because I, I, I'm ready to go another hour, but we can't do that. <laughs> so I, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. This was a very interesting, uh, but also very illuminating uh, conversation that we've had about many things that um, as much as I think I know politics, uh, I don't know nearly as much as uh, I learned today. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. 
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.